Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Hello, Donald. How are you today? Good. How about you? Fine. Uh, still with the blank background. Your wife hasn't let you back into the main house, I see. You're still out in the dark. <laughs> no, we're, we're moving, and I have, we have to take everything off the walls because they're going to paint. Okay. Are they going to paint you while they're at it? No, we're going to be out of the house for a week while they do it. <laughs> and today we have with us George Sadowski. I hope I said that correctly. I'm horrible with, with pronouncing names. So George has, I looked at his webpage and I was like, okay, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> There's so much stuff on this webpage of stuff that he's been involved in. So George, why don't we just start from the very beginning, how you got into computing, and then let's talk through some of the stuff you've been involved in and uh, see where we go. Okay, thank you. Uh, I do want to comment, though, uh, having done a lot of things means that you've uh, lived a long time. It doesn't require <laughs> anything else, uh, and I have. Uh, so, so I got into computing when I dropped out of graduate school in mathematics. I discovered I didn't want to be a pure mathematician. That was what was uh, uh, being strongly encouraged at the place I was at. Uh, I got a job programming. It was an IBM 704, uh, a tube machine, uh, which cost $3 million. It was a General Electric in Schenectady uh, first, and then at Combustion Engineering in Connecticut. We made nuclear reactors. And I worked on uh, Monte Carlo codes for neutron diffusion and neutron absorption, things like that. But I, uh, Fortran and assembly language and occasionally machine language, really octal coded machine language, uh, because that was the way in which you corrected your program because it was too expensive to recompile. So uh, there were. It, it was a very, very different uh, uh, scene than, than what we have. What we have now. Um, well, I quickly got interested in, in in the system as opposed to the neutron diffusion, uh, and I wrote uh, in sequence a simple assembler, uh, a disassembler, because with all these octal patches that were going in, you often didn't know what you had in your object file. Um, and then finally, I wrote an operating system, a fairly simple one. Uh, it was a batch operating system, but our, uh, our headquarters were in Connecticut. Our machine was in New York City. Uh, the operators really uh, didn't have much of a clue as to exactly what we were doing, and we had to send down things that would run automatically. Uh, so I wrote an operating system to do that, and I loved it. Uh, and then left uh, combustion. I thought I wanted to go back and uh, possibly be an economist. So I, I went down to Yale, and I, I spent um, – I had a half-time job running the computer center, which was a full-time job, and I had a half-time job being a research assistant in economics. That was also a full-time job. They got a good deal. Uh, but I, I learned about uh, uh, other aspects of programming, uh, um, economic analysis. Uh, I had a lot of fun. It was probably one of the best years of my life, uh, although it was one of the busiest. Went to graduate school, did some interesting work. Uh, uh, we did... Um, Let's see, thinking back, we did a wonderful uh, project for the state of Connecticut, one of the first computer redistricting projects that was ever done. Uh, that's come up uh, more recently, and I wish I could have uh, contributed to some of that. Um, uh, I did... Uh, 
I did a program for the Treasury Department doing microanalysis of individual income tax returns, which is one of the better things I've done. And one of the scarier things that happened is that being on the advisory committee about 20 years ago, that same subject, I saw portions of my source code of 40 years earlier still in the programs that were being run. That's scary. No, that's awesome. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's scary. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, then I went on. I was going to do a PhD in economics, and I went to the Urban Institute and did a, um, a essentially a half economics, half programming thesis on uh, micro um, microanalytic simulation, dynamic simulation of the household sector. Uh, and uh, w that work is still going on, although in much uh, changed form at the Urban Institute. And I hope I can uh, affiliate with them. We've just moved to Washington and the pandemic has got us locked up. But uh, I hope I can affiliate with some of that work in the future also, because it was a lot of fun also. Um, I've never had a job where I've, which I've had to take. I've always enjoyed what I've done. Well, in 72, I gave a lecture at Statistics Canada is this too much detail for you? I give a lecture at Statistics Canada on what we called um, a codebook-driven uh, analysis. Uh, codebook is a data dictionary. It's just the, uh, the survey research uh, term for it. And uh, because all of the work that we were doing at the Urban Institute was codebook-driven, and that was totally new for the, uh, uh, for the social sciences. Uh, and the director of... Um, uh, statistics, the Dominion Bureau of Statistics at that time was there and he, he was at lunch. He took me to lunch and he said, uh, you know, this is really interesting stuff. I'm sorry I can't come in to hear your formal talk this afternoon. It's really important stuff. I said, if it's so important, you should be there. And, uh, uh, and, and I guess I'd had a little too much wine because I, I said it. <laughs> I think I said, why aren't you coming um, in the presence of some of his staff? And he didn't particularly like that, but he came. And then he became the director of statistics for the United Nations. And he invited me to join him at, uh, at the UN. And the UN, um, well, let's see, here's a riddle for the UN. Uh, you guys might know the answer to how many people work at the UN? None of them. Maybe the, maybe, the, maybe the guys who sweep the floors and clean the garbage out. It was close to the truth when I was there. You had people, wonderful sets of people who you worked with and did good things with, and then people who were there because it was a lot better than where they were, uh, where they were from, and New York was an exciting place and all the rest. So I, I tried to get work done inside the UN, and I'll give you an example of, uh, of what it was like. This was 1973. You guys were alive in 73, weren't you? Probably weren't programming. Um, so so I, go, I go to the director of uh, EDP, big, I, I, a big IBM 37145, big at that time. And, and I'm, uh, I'm responsible for the programming and the statistical cal uh, calculations and, and publications in the, in the statistical office. And I said, what do I have to do to get a directory of my files? Uh, on the machine, and I didn't have any files on the machine. I was just sounding him out on, you know, how did he operate? And he said, you write me a memo. 
And I said to myself, we're not going to go very far here. <laughs> this, is, this is not good. Uh, and and uh, my hypothesis was he was put, he was an American. I think he was put in there by, by the CIA to make sure that the UN didn't go anywhere. So I, I turned to the other half of the, uh, uh, of, of the job, and that was working with developing countries. And that was fun. Uh, because uh, when you went to these countries, they knew they had problems. They, they, they could generally recognize when you, when you suggested solutions, uh, and they were willing to help you implement the solutions. And it was a wonderful time. I spent 13 years doing it. I worked in probably 35 to 40 countries. I kept doing it after leaving the UN. Uh, and I probably worked in 50 or so developing countries. Uh, yeah. So so in that work, it sounds like from, from reading your page, that you were focused a lot on bringing the internet to those countries while you were there. You weren't just doing statistical work. You were actually training, teaching them how to get the internet in, stuff like that. Is that? There was no internet. This was 1973 to 19. And we did one project on networking with modem transmission in Mongolia, outer Mongolia. Uh, and, and that was it. We did do some, uh, some time-sharing work, if you, if you classify that as networking. Uh, that was a bit in Bolivia and a couple of other countries. Uh, but mostly it was, it was, it was uh, census pr uh, processing, but, but it was everything else. You had to, uh, these people had never seen a computer. They had uh, electrical systems where the frequency varied all over the place, the voltage varied. The idea of key punching, of even recording data, of collecting data in a systematic way was, uh, uh, was, was beyond them. Their libraries and their universities, I, I visited the universities in these places often because this is where you were going to be training people. And the books were 20 years old, the, such that they had. A university would have about three lineal feet of book of technical bookshelf space and computing and it was essentially in, in most cases I think it was discards from ex uh, from experts from developing countries who had been there before but we put in computers I taught people how to record data I taught people programming I taught them a package uh, utilization uh, organization of uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of processes of projects and the like and it was all it was just all over the map there were a couple of GIS projects in there. There was a project in India and getting a supercomputer and modeling uh, um, basin, uh, water, large water basins on the Indian coast. I was in China a lot. I was the uh, software advisor for the Chinese population census from 1982 to 1986. And that was quite a, good, quite a good experience. That was the best country I worked in. Egypt was the next best. Um, and then I realized I was losing my edge uh, technically because the UN, as somebody put it to me as she did Denied my request to go to a to a joint computer conference, he, she said, "Mr. Sadowski, we don't invest in technical advisors; we consume them." <laughs> and uh, so she was. Uh, so um, I decided to get out, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I went to Northwestern and I ran computing and networking there, and then went to NYU and did the same thing. Uh, that was over a 14 or 15 year period and uh, got some of my technical edge back. And that was fun because uh, at Northwestern, we got involved in networking. 1986, our first network experience was with something called MIT Mail. You probably don't know about that, do you? Yeah, actually I do. 
<laughs> well, do you remember in the 1800s when the mail trains, when the trains had mail cars on them and these big hooks that hung the bags on? This was MIT mail. They would come around every, uh, uh, every twice a day at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock or whatever the, the arranged time was, and they would pick up a big file with a known name in a specific uh, directory, and that was all your outgoing mail. And they'd leave you a file with all your incoming mail, which you didn't sort it out, a program sort it out. And put it. But anyway, so this was MIT mail, and uh, MIT mail was, um, you know, it was the best we had. And we, we, that was a, a period, over those four years, we tried, for the first three, we weren't on the internet, we weren't on NSFnet, uh, although we were watching it, and we, uh, we had no other, uh, no other particular way of uh, getting mail. We, we tried to use all kinds of uh, LAN mail. We had every, I think every kind of LAN available to mankind was running somewhere on that university. We did weird things, uh, like because of the layout of the university when we first got TCP, uh, IP, uh, internet connectivity, uh, we actually wrote a TCP IP to Apple Talk uh, co uh, uh, converter uh, and uh, uh, used it because we wanted to go more than 100 yards. And Apple Talk would go for, uh, you know, fractions of a mile and fractions thereof. So there was all this kind of experimentation with networking. And when I went to NYU, things changed radically because NYU had been a uh, uh, one of the uh, original AE facilities. In fact, it was the NYU facility that I used in 1958 to do the nuclear calculations. Um, and they were big in, into networking and they were on the ARPANET, uh, which then became something else. I can't remember exactly when the names changed. And that was a particularly uh, good experience. And then I thought, you know, having having come back up uh, back up to snuff, I said, "What about all those poor bastards in the rest of the world who aren't experiencing the uh, uh, the virtues of the internet?" Here's an example: Rwanda. Do you do you guys say? Did you guys look at my video in the Internet Hall of Fame presentation? Let me give you the short the short version if you haven't. I spent two weeks in Rwanda uh, trying to get an NCR eighty two fifty going. This went uh, uh, from um, installing a UPS to installing the computer, to, uh, uh, to making sure the machine was grounded properly, to making sure that the staff person in charge watered the ground every morning so the machine would work. But we couldn't, we couldn't get it to work. I mean, there were, some, there were some strange things in some of the terminals, some of the deflection plates had come loose, we fixed that. But we could never get it to work. So I, I called, so I tried to get a hold of NCR. Hey, do you know what it takes to get a hold of NCR in Rwanda? Two hours per day of radio telephone somewhere else to the global telephony network. Uh, those two hours per day correspond to 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. In, in uh, Dayton, Ohio, which I was trying to get to. Uh, tried to send a telex to my, uh, uh, which was the original email, uh, to my colleagues in New York saying, will you please call NCR and, and tell them here's what we're experiencing. And uh, telex didn't telex went through but the telex operators paid to save money so he deletes words and i swear it was a they deleted precisely the words that that caused the telex to become unfathomable and un, uh, not useful same with the replies so we just gave up 
we gave up. And I thought and it turned out later, by the way, that we had the documentation. It was it was an obvious thing. If you look if you knew exactly where to look, we had the documentation for version two, we had the operating system for version three. Uh, this could have been settled with a with two internet messages. Uh, and I thought so, and that's where I coined the term information poverty. And that's so. So as a result of that, when I joined uh, NYU, I guess Richard Mandelbaum. I was, uh, I was on the board of NYU Net by default uh, through position. Uh, Richard Mandelbaum, um, one of the early pioneers in New York State, uh, got a whole bunch of fellowships for people to go to INET Kobe 1992, and I went. And some. Egyptian, no, some Italian guy dragged through uh, 20 Africans through Kobe and said, this is the internet. And, and it, was a t- it, was, it was really, it was not very good. Uh, it, was, no, it was worse than that. And so I got a hold of Larry Landweber and I said, you're missing an opportunity here. Let's, let's move the internet into developing countries. So we got uh, and uh, he, he said, I'll give, I think he gave me $50,000 to do it. And Lee Caldwell of uh, Hewlett-Packard gave me 100000 And then I raised about the same amount from, from other sources. We got, um, in 1993 at Stanford, we had about 140 people from about 70 countries, uh, all of whom were selected by an all-volunteer staff people, tech, uh, technical people who gave the workshops. Uh, they came in, they had a six-day course, hands-on, Cisco donated equipment. Barry Green was responsible for that. Uh, and, uh, uh, and they had, uh, and by the, by the end of that six days, we had three tracks, one on what do you do if, you're, if your country isn't on the internet? <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, what do you do uh, if you if, if you want to? The second is developing TCP/IP network development, and the third was how do you get information? And that third course became the, the next year. It became not only how do you get information, but how do you provide information? Because at that point, the web was just uh, just emerging. Uh, Randy Bush, who's well known to people in this field, led the uh, the, the, uh, the second track on, on uh, TCP/IP networking. And and I think it was Steve Fram and the folks at an NGO in Stanford, uh, in California, that uh, that put together the first course. Well, it went pretty well. We then took them to Interop uh, in San Francisco. We spent a week, they spent a week at Interop, and then they went home, and we were able to cover just about all the costs from the money that had been raised and the money that was volunteered. Uh, there were some, uh, if there's time, I'll come back. There were some interesting things that came out of that. Um, so so uh, the ISOC board loved it. It was all done in conjunction with the Internet Society. And um, Joanne Scott and I uh, were persuaded. She was the uh, full-time, almost full-time volunteer who lived in Palo Alto. We decided to uh, do it again, even a lot of work. Uh, so we did it in Prague in 94, in Hawaii in 95, in, uh, where'd we go in 96? I've forgotten. Montreal, but so this is INET, right? This is INET. Yeah, this is these were the these were the network development workshops, uh, uh, sponsored by the Internet Society, 
run by a group of volunteers, funded and by wherever we could get the money uh, every every year. And the courses got longer; they got more, they got bigger. In '96, we taught we taught in French also. In '98, we taught in French in Geneva, and it was because this was the only place that you know when, when you think back on those years, you you may have been in the field by then. Uh, when you think back, the, the concentration of, of information about the internet was where, you know, it was in just a very few places. You could not, you could not learn about the internet um, without going to one of those places. And uh, we had it. And in 2001, we gave it up because there were more places. By that time, the knowledge had spread to the point where there was no point bringing people halfway around the globe to, uh, to learn about the internet. But email was flourishing and they formed uh, uh, communities. They, they, uh, they, used the, they used each other for, for help. Uh, and Vince says that we moved, uh, that this group of volunteers moved the internet forward about two to three years further than it would have been in the uh, developing countries. And that's that's really great. So we're pretty happy about that. And so the interaction with Interop, how did that go? Because the interaction with Interop, how did that go? Well, it was it was an experiment, and it was only because Interop at that point was 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 tied to INET uh, in in terms of the calendar. Uh, what we wanted to do was was to convince these 130 some people that there was a larger community and a very technical community, but a very active community developing this technology. And we wanted them to meet. Uh, we, we didn't, and, and there are some sessions in Interop that were of a tutorial nature and sufficiently, uh, 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 sufficiently simple that uh, these people got a lot out of it. Others were more complex and, and uh, we, what we, want, we, wanted the, we, we wanted the network, the people networking to, uh, uh, to start and, that's, and we achieved that. Moving forward from there, when you did INET, so it seems like you did a lot of work continuing after INET, those INET series to continue to try to bring the internet to the global world, Ghana, Telecom Asia, things like that as you went on forward. Well, some of that was done in, in conjunction with the, uh, uh, with the INET workshops. I remember in Kuala Lumpur, I think I gave six or seven talks to various government and private groups about the internet and you know how how you should how you should regard it, what policies uh, were important with respect to growing the internet and so on. But in in two thousand, I I retired. I retired from NYU fairly quickly. Was recruited to run something called Gippy Global Internet Policy Initiative. Uh, we had. Uh, it was it was run jointly by CDT Center for Democracy and Technology and uh, Internews uh, Inc, which is a an NGO in Washington which supports journalists and how do, how do you how do you pro, uh, how do you maintain free flow of information and free speech to the extent you can in repressive countries and Internews realized that. Uh, 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 electronic communication was the future, and they really had better uh, start implementing computers and using the networks that then existed uh, to train journalists how to uh, uh, how to use them. And I don't know, I don't remember much about those. We had in 17 countries, we had full-time people, um, lawyers, um, physicists, mathematicians, uh, and they all they were full-time. In some places, we had more than one person, and their job was to help countries uh, 
uh, to understand internet policy and what would help their countries uh, to uh, take advantage of it faster. And it was a, an interesting group of countries because the majority of it was the former Soviet Union, you know, where, where you would not think that such an approach was, would be particularly um, uh, effective. Well, we didn't talk about free flow of information and free speech to them. We talked about getting on the, the economic development train before it left the station. In India, we talked about plural, a plurality of speech and the ability to, to share and to, and to bring, to, to, to combat illiteracy and the like. Uh, and in Indonesia, we did roughly the same thing. Um, but uh, oh, that, was, that was fascinating. These are tough countries to work in. There are people get disappear off the streets in some of them. Um, and we actually had some, we had some good experiences. We had, we had, an interest, had an interesting conversation with the Russians at one point. I think it was in 2002, I was over there. And uh, the Russian Duma, on internet wanted to meet with us and us being Eric Johnson, who was, uh, uh, and Bob Horb, no, Bob wasn't on that. No, it wasn't there yet. Eric Johnson and our, our Russian uh, uh, reps. Uh, and they said, uh, hey, is, uh, is the internet a communication service or an information service? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it's not either one, it's both. When I look back on that, they're asking the same question that people are asking about Section 230 in the FCC debates today. It's neither and it's both. And and just like we're trying to do, they were trying to decide what body, what established body of law they were going to apply to regulate the internet. Uh, now, that conversation, that was a three-hour meeting. After about the first hour, I decided I'd had, uh, I think I'd had one shot of vodka, and, uh, and I was sitting next to a potted plant, <laughs> and after the third hour, we were all professing Soviet uh, Western friendship, and all the rest. And the plant was drooping. <laughs> uh, so, and I don't know quite whatever happened to that, but uh, uh, but uh, but there there are really interesting experiences that happen in these in these uh, uh, countries that you that are totally out of the ordinary. You would not expect to, you you would never experience them here. That's part of what made the job fun, uh, because the the technical work and the policy work was was not quite as uh, exciting as it could have been. But we made some uh, we made some advances in Serbia. Um, to, to give you just a couple of examples, my Serbian guy actually sued Serbia Telecom, being a monopoly, out of his NGO, out of his three person NGO, uh, and uh, and as the political situation shifted. He won. So, you know, this was a way of, uh, of lowering costs. The Serbia Telecom had a, had a, had a monopoly on the Internet. Uh, and uh, my guy helped break it. Uh, in the same way, let's see, in, in Kazakhstan, which is one of the toughest countries to operate in, because there people really do disappear off the streets. I had a courageous woman lawyer who managed to convince the Kazakh parliament websites should, this is a Section 230 thing. Websites should not be reliable for misinformation that is put on their sites, if they're public information sites. Now, that was a, a short-lived victory because the political situation changed and the law reverted, and my uh, full-time person there uh, quit. And I don't know. I, th I don't think she disappeared literally, but I think uh, uh, we were we were out of business in Kazakhstan. And, and that's what happens if you work in developing countries or in either in any countries that are relatively unstable or that 
in this case, Kazakhstan's quite stable. It was a diversion, uh, an unusual diversion. Uh, you're going to have surprises like that. So that project, that project was funded primarily because of the uh, of the um, uh, of the boom in the in the um, market in the stock market in the late 1990s. Uh, everybody thought it was good. Uh, we have uh, the internet is a good thing. We have a lot of money. We've uh, we've invested in these uh, securities, and so we'll fund this project. And by about 2005 or six, uh, there was nobody particularly interested in that uh, anymore. Uh, so. Uh, I was again unemployed, and at that point I said, I'll, I'll start working for ICANN. Vint called me, Vint Surf called me, and said, uh, will you run the ICANN uh, nominating committee? Now, the ICANN nominating committee is actually a selection committee. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, you just don't say no to Vint. I said yes. Uh, and the next year he was having trouble getting somebody no, the next year, well, I better not talk about the next year. It was the, the person he got was removed. And I ran it for a third year. And I said, this is it. I'm not doing it anymore. But my God, look at the people we're putting on the board. I could be on that board. And so I applied and I got on. <laughs> and I spent nine years on the ICANN board. Um, and uh, and I didn't do a lot of of extracurricular activity during that time. Uh, I think the, the, the ex except to the extent that I could influence ICANN decisions in a way that were, were useful for uh, developing countries. And if you know ICANN's remit, you know that, that that is a minor part, if in fact it's even admitted that it's a part of ICANN's remit. Uh, I did come out strongly against some things that would have hurt developing countries. And, uh, and I think that was, uh, I hope that was appreciated in, in some way. That's interesting because the ICANN is really a world apart from the ISOC. People, you know, out in the networking world don't necessarily know the difference, but they're completely different organizations with completely different purposes and, and everything else. Um, so it's interesting that you made the move from working with the Internet Society over to working with ICANN. Now, were you involved in the Internet Society at the same time that you were on the board or... Well, let's see. I was on the board of ISOC. I didn't mention this from 1996 through 2004, with the exception of one year, which I'd forgotten. Um, no, there was no overlap. I just thought this is pretty interesting stuff. Let's uh, let's see if I can make a contribution. And of course, saying no to Vint. I mean, if Vint had asked me to uh, to take over the garbage collectors of New York City, I would have said yes. That was just that was just who who that's who Vint is. Uh, so, uh, but I, I got interested in it, and uh, um, it also has something to do with uh, my economics background because what I was observing was the birth of an industry. Yeah, the industry is the domain name industry, or the if, if you throw in the IP addresses, which I suspect right now you can, uh, because they now have monetary value. Uh, the um, uh, the uh, the internet assignment uh, names and address assignment industry. Yeah, the regional internet registries and how they came up and started yeah. actually becoming self-supporting just by selling right IP address space. Right, but there's a private market too. Oh yes, there's a private market as well. Private market hasn't come. I think is a three four years old at most. Uh, because there were lots of IP addresses you could get. In 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 essence, the region, the RIRs kept the price. Uh, low because they would sell, they would give to anyone. Well, although increasingly they used rationing uh, as their as their technique, they kept the price low when they rationed the uh, uh, the allocations. 
So that so that was interesting, and that led to a, um, a, a curious phenomenon. I was a I was an expert witness, and I am now. I was because I think it's it's out of the uh, uh, out of the deliberation stage. Uh, I was an expert witness in the uh, dot uh, the dot web uh, IRP that uh, that is now being decided by the arbitration panel, and I used uh, my economic experience to look at look at the industry and uh, do analysis uh, of that. So so it's all it comes together in in, pr- in interesting ways. You primarily worked around education with the Internet Society, is that correct? Pretty much. Well, I was running the workshops, and, and that was, I think, when I look back on it, that was a half-time job. Alan Greenberg from uh, um, Canada, from um, um, then from McGill University, joined me uh, after a few workshops and uh, and worked with me, and that was a that was a big. Uh, uh, help and he's he also made the jump over to ICANN and is very active in ICANN as a, a member of working groups now. Uh, so you mentioned CDT earlier. I didn't realize they were quite that old. I thought CDT was uh, Center for Democracy and Technology was much. They're ninety five, I think. They, they started sometime in the mid nineties. That's older than I thought because they're still around. I see them. I see them at conferences every now and again and try to talk to them and stuff. But uh, you know, it's interesting. So um, beyond that, I mean, more recent. Go back to your CDT. They are the source of uh, Alyssa, uh, who's running the IETF. And um, what's his name? Joe. um, I'm getting bad with names. Joe, who's now one of the senior vice presidents of ISOC, the technical guy. And they they were both uh, the uh, the, they were both at uh, CDT before that. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So I didn't realize that they were that old or that they had that much influence. Uh, like I said, I see them at conferences every now and again, but I didn't. So what is PeopleLink? You were a member of the board of directors. Is that a networking thing as well? <sighs> that was a mistake. <laughs> it was okay. run by a guy whose name I have forgotten. Uh, and, uh, his idea was, look, uh, we've got to open up, and it's not a unique idea. Uh, Unctad uh, did a lot of this, uh, Bruno Lavan did a lot of work on this too. Uh, uh, he said, let's, let's figure out a way so that developing countries can, can engage in e-commerce to the extent they can. And PeopleLink uh, was uh, a way of setting up a, 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 the guy set up a website um, for sale, uh, things from Nepal. And he said, you order from me. I go, I do the Nepalese transfer of money and so on. I organize bulk shipments out of Nepal to the United States and then ship internally. And we give these guys some money. And it was very well-meaning. Yeah, it's not. It's not a bad idea. It's hard to do. It's harder to do than it sounds yeah, like. He, well, he failed. He failed. He he he, he never. He, he he didn't have a consistent plan for doing it, and he would shift his plan. You know, he'd have a. It's almost like he had a bad night's sleep. He'd call me and he'd say, "Hey, why don't we do it this way?" I said, "But we've already started doing it this way." Uh, and so on. And it never really got off the ground. The World Information Technology Forum, what's that about? An Indian entrepreneur decided to run conferences, apparently had a lot of money or he was able to raise money, on 
information technology and its use in developing countries. There were a lot of these things going on in the, in the late 90s they started in the early 2000s because this was, this was the hot new thing. Although his, his effort was in the mid-2000s, mid I think, mid-2005 and so on. And so he would, uh, uh, he would invite people to come and speak and, and talk on panels. And, and uh, you know, the idea was you throw enough people, good people in a, in, in a conference and maybe some good things come out. Well, they didn't. Uh, there were a series of, uh, of, of three or, f- or four conferences. He meant well. A lot of these things sound like that. They sound like these are good people with good intentions, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't pan out to anything. Is this, a, is, is this kind of a common lesson you found across your life? Of Well, fortunately, nothing like that is going on today. Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're, all, we're all trying. For, for all of its faults, the UN and uh, uh, places like USAID, uh, and the, in particular the, the uh, Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish aid agencies, do very well by picking out certain problems and saying, let's solve this problem now that we can do it, uh, as opposed to let's all get together and talk about it. Now, they also all get together and talk about it, but by and large, the, the people who do the best work are the, uh, the, the people with uh, uh, feet on the ground and with specific, with specific issues. And they don't, and, and they're also people who, who are problem-oriented and not necessarily technology-oriented. They look and say, ah, is this technology going to help us solve this problem? Or we got this hot new technology, let's go and spread it and see how many problems we can solve with it. And that's true. And, and then there's the other, the other danger, the other thing that we've learned is that it, it's, you, you have to, if, if a project is, is good for the future, and of course that's, that's the problem with, with these prototype projects, you say, we're going to see if this works. So we're going to give radios to fishermen off the coast of India or whatever. Uh, and uh, uh, you, you not only have to have the project replicable, scalable, but you also have to be able to move it. Uh, that is to say, if, if it works in, in, in giving people, if giving fishermen radios so they can check market prices off the coast of India is good in one place, maybe it's good. India has a big coastline. Maybe we should do it all over. Now, that's one thing. But can you transport it to Chile? Or can you transport it to any other country? So it has to be replicable and reproducible uh, outside of the particular context in which it was created. And, and uh, th- there was a, a great deal of prototyping done in the late ni- 1990s, uh, which, which showed that some things were feasible, but didn't go on to show that they had any meaning anywhere else in the world. And that was, uh, uh, it was unfortunate. I think we've learned since then that, uh, that it's necessary to show both. Yeah, I think I think it's really important what you said there that, you know, you're out to solve problems, not to take technology and figure out where it fits. And I think we do that way too much in the networking world. We invent a technology and we're like, oh, let's go try to do something with it and become important or whatever, instead of saying... There is a, a place for that. There's no question. I mean, you do want these Johnny Appleseeds of, te- of technology because otherwise you wouldn't know about them. They, they, tend to, they tend to tell you what's new and what's hot. And, it's, and, and if you're a problem solver, you listen and you say, can I use it? So that's great. I think we'll wrap up there. This has actually been terrific. I know it may not seem like that, but it's been really interesting to listen to you talk about some of this history and some of these organizations and people. Thanks, George, for coming on now. 
do you currently have any blogs or I, I know you have your website. I'll point to that. Is there any other place or things that you're working on that are? I don't No, No, I, in fact, my, even my website is about two years out of date. I've got to, uh, uh, I've, I've got to bring that up to date and then I've got to decide what I want to do next. But once the pandemic is over and I haven't done that yet. Okay, cool. And Donald, you've been really quiet. Where can people get in touch with you? Same old place on Twitter at me, not you, Sharp. All right, cool. And I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech. Thanks for joining us for this history of networking. Subscribe to the history of networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.